Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss The Battle of Agincourt. Wade in their blood. I think that's a pretty good one. Yeah, so, do you think you got another one in you this morning? Uh, might as well. All right. <clears throat> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Are equerries just full of blades? Whatever happened to the Wizard of the West? Are horses just full of viscera? Not anymore. Most histories of the uncivil wars, the Battle of Three Hills is but a footnote, especially given its proximity to the much more contentious Battle of Marchford. But for us, back then, Marchford might have been the crucible that forged us, but Three Hills lit the furnace. Extract from the personal memoirs of Lady Aisha Bishara. That is a, uh, I don't know that I really put together exactly how um, Aisha's, I don't know, metaphor is appropriate given how uh, directly referential it is of the events of the battle. You know, lit, lit the furnace for the crucible. Sure, that's a nice turn of phrase. But also, the battle is a fire one. So it's kind of, there's, there's a little bit of extra meaning there that I literally just now put together. So, uh, you know. Hey, everybody. Thanks for uh, letting me join in in this discussion that's probably been going on since, let me check here, March 30th, 2016. This chapter covers some of that Battle of the Three Hills, because frankly, remarkably, even though Pretty Boy got got, the army's still gonna get it while the getting's good. Hmm. And they get charged by a bunch of horses, they watch the battle unfold, and then they have to deal with an equerry who is a little upset because of the aforementioned got getting. I was wondering what variation of that you were gonna go with. I was on I was on the edge of my seat for that one. This is a this is a fun you know, I I did mention noticing something about this epigraph, but this is our first uh memoir of Aisha uh epigraph that we get, which Will there be more? Uh, there are a handful more, of course. I, I think six. Um, regardless, they are some of my favorite ser- epigraph series. Uh, I, you know, obviously the heroic axioms are top notch, and anything that Triumphant says is great. But I, there's just something special about these, and we've talked a lot about how directly the epigraphs relate to the events of the uh, following chapter, uh, and <laughs> this one doesn't really need that because of how it is literally referring to the events of the chapter, which is great. Um, it's just, it's fun to see these sometimes. It's just a fun extra layer of narrative from some time in the future that I just really appreciate. You know how last regular episode we opened with a long tangent and then we had two weeks off for whatever that was, which by the way, thank you, EE, we love you. Yes. And how people would really appreciate if we finally got back to the chapter. Yes. How many different epigraph series come to mind for you i've got five five okay by a series i mean things that really stand out like obviously there are a number from maleficent the first but yeah i'm not counting that as particularly special even though she's special Mm -hmm. because eh. but i've got yeah i've got five okay so obviously we've got the memoirs of aisha we've got the musings of triumphant we've got the heroic axioms 
Um, I don't know if you want to count this because there's exactly two, I believe, or maybe there's a third somewhere in there, uh, but direct quotes from the book of all things. Um, I didn't count it, but frankly, that's our prologue and right. they're good. So they're, yeah, they're very powerful in. when they show up. Okay. Um, do you, are you counting maybe quotes by living characters or characters who are active in the narrative? Like, I don't have any of those on the list, but if you feel anybody stands out... Oh, I didn't mean individuals, but like a category of like when we have a quote from Nim, like we did last chapter, and things like that. Just th I didn't count it, but you're okay. welcome to. Mm, I don't know. It, it feels borderline to me. Um, um, I don't know if I have any others past those that I'm thinking of that really solidify into the, the like a broad category, or even just a... a maybe not broad... Uh, a category that has enough depth to it to stand alone. Uh, I mean, the musings of all the other tyrants, dread tyrants, uh, other than two of them stand out for me. Uh, being a traitorous, I assume. Traitorous and who is phenomenal. It may just be me, but irritant. Oh yeah. Does irritant have many epigraphs? Actually, I don't know, but they're the best. Let's think very carefully and not just type it in and look it up. I would never type in PGTE epigraphs and click on the Wikia link. Well, you might not, but as we all know from the last two episodes, EE would. <laughs> uh, yeah, Irritant has a bunch, actually. You're right. They're all good. Dread Emperor Irritant, the oddly successful. Uh, oh, there's a pyramid scheme one, of course. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Traitorous has more than Irritant. Uh, I guess one other thing that I you know, saw here, one other category that I might include would be sayings. I feel like there's a, a handful of like Proser and sayings, Callow and sayings, Pracy sayings. I'm willing to believe in it. I, like we had, uh, have we had any yet? Yeah, we have. In book one, we had a Tegreb say, saying and a Suninke saying. We've already had the Pracy saying in book two. Yeah, there's. You know what we haven't had yet? There's a bunch. Uh, what have we not had yet? A discussion of the chapter. If you insist. Uh, so the chapter... It's important to pair the epigraph discussion with the chapter. <laughs> yeah, actually, it, does, it makes the epigraph mean more if you actually discuss the chapter it's attached to. Fair enough. Um, this chapter begins with... Uh, Podcast guys talking E-E-E. P-T-T-E-E-E. <laughs> Podcast guys talking. Erratic erratic That'll be a sequel series. Yeah, just go through the epigraphs directly. We have to record it in one day, though. 700-whatever epigraphs just in a row. We should have been doing that as a side mm. thing on... We should have been... Honestly, we should have been doing that as a side thing on Patreon. Patreon.com slash P-G-T-E-E. Mm-hmm. We could have had a, a little thing on there, a little 10... Who am I kidding? 30-minute clip every week that is us discussing the epigraph. I do have so much time to spend podcasting. You can tell because the episodes keep getting longer. <laughs> okay. The chapter, the chapter, the chapter. Um, the chapter begins with uh, Kat and her crew laughing because... They killed a guy with a crossbow, which is objectively hilarious. Um, and then the cataphracts come, and uh, we get one of the strangest ways to refer to a group of horses I have ever read. There are, you know, about... Nine hundred... Is that right? Yeah. Nine hundred cataphracts. And we are given the description of them... 1,800 pairs of hooves. We don't... Normally with uh, quadrupedal animals, you don't <laughs> refer to them as having... Like, you don't count them as two separate pairs of legs or feet or claws or paws or whatever. And I, I don't know. There's so many ways to refer to groups of horses. And there's other ways to refer to their hooves. Like if you just said, I don't know, 3,600 hooves... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 1,800 pairs of hooves is astoundingly powerful and definitely unique. And, not, you know, full credit to the author on this, whoever he is. If I had met him, I'd remember his name, but, you know. I gotta say, I was always accomplished in mathematics. Yes, we're going on another tangent about my school years. <laughs> okay. I was accomplished in mathematics. In grade school, I was always a grade up in math, which I was so proud of because I thought that intelligence was real and that it mattered. Don't believe the lies, kids. Get bad grades. But, and to this day, math comes relatively easily to me. I teach it regularly to students. I gotta say, 
1800 pairs is just enough making math language and making you go two directions at once that it's it's just an irksome wrinkle in trying to figure out how many horses are actually meant yeah because 1800 okay pairs four hooves the pairs so the four hooves that's half as many for the pairs mm-hmm. and then 1800 you'll i mean unless the silence gets edited out for some reason which we never otherwise do the hesitation when I was saying how many horses there were was me making double checking that math <laughs> because it's definitely just on the other side of clear. Like it's it's just obfuscated enough. I wanted to correct you because no no eighteen hundred pairs horses have four hooves so they're only four hundred fifty. Wait. Yep. No, there are thirty six hundred horses. No. <laughs> it's, it's a mess. I love it. It's so good. Sadly, much like George R. R. Martin in the Clickhole article that I may have referenced three weeks ago, I don't know what a horse is. It, sorry, did you mean Jarton R. R. Martin? Jarton, Martin, Martin, Martin. Right, thank you. <laughs> the only thing I know about horses is what hopefully stays inside them. Uh, yep. So the horses uh, roll up. Horses roll, right? I'm sorry, I also don't know. I assume they roll. They're vehicles, right? Yeah. Okay. Hoof is the term for that like big wheel on the uh those weird bikes they had back in the day. On you know? a big on a big wheel, like the thing that kids ride these days. Right. Yeah, perfect. Uh so anyway, the the cataphracts roll up and uh run into a prepared line of spikes and a volley of crossbows and uh it's a mess. And uh the the imagery we get here is pretty awful. Uh in a heartbeat, they, the cataphracts, were stopped cold. A line of eviscerated horses and upended riders marking the work of my sappers. And then a fourth, to be clear, volley hit uh, of crossbow bolts. And Cat uh, describes that as a sheer slaughter. Uh, so we get horses charging into a prepared line of stakes and crossbow-wielding sappers. Uh... And following this, there's a blast of flame from mages. There are strings everywhere since the horses are all cut open. It's a mess. And, uh, you know, have I have I mentioned Agincourt yet this episode? Because if I haven't, I need to say the word Agincourt. Um, I, this, the, I don't want to go too much into this because, you know, who I don't want to waste everybody's time with talking about history. It's That's definitely not my role in this podcast. That's more your thing. Um, but... This battle is so, the Battle of the Three Hills is so directly referential of the famed Battle of Agincourt that it is, it would be wild to not at least mention it. You've got the heavy cavalry charging into stakes who are struggling because, and they're struggling because of the mud and there are powerful ranged weapons keeping them at bay and... Uh, the the battlefield itself is fighting against one side, and there's the the slog through it, and you know there's just layers and layers of that that are just directly, uh, you know, if not word for word pulled from uh, from history, then at least inspired by true events, if you will, plus fireballs, you know, just because we want the movie to be exciting. I've always said that any film adaptation of the guide should be done by. Are you trying to pick a director right now? Michael Bay. There it is. Good choice. Or Scorsese, one of the two. I don't know. I think it'd be pretty fun if it were Quentin Tarantino. I wish I actually had a grasp of directors. Oh, James Cameron. There you go. Well, I don't know. He doesn't know how to make short people, from what I've seen lately. And Kat's very short. True. But James Cameron is the second human being to have gone to the Challenger Deep, which he just did in 2012. 60 years after the first person did because apparently he's just like that so i figure for research for this he would just go to to, yeah and then we'd have a portal open to there which actually he should not do this i do not want to have them touch me this is a dangerous realm (laughs) all right it is decided james cameron i know you're listening when you make the practical guide uh uh movie when you make the practical guide podcast movie do not open a portal to calernia please Please, yes, thank you. It it, it does it, it is worth being polite here, since the man can apparently open a portal to a fictional realm. So at this point, the Silver Spears and their masked accompaniment 
have seen their magic trump card's head just do that. (laughs) And then their charge turned into horse viscera and crossbow fire is so intense that their people are misting. I know we typically don't do spoilers, but if anyone doesn't want to hear about next chapter, cover your ears. Hopefully you have earbuds in so you can still hear the dulcet sounds of my honeyed voice. But they're still fighting next chapter, and Catherine's army is still working to maintain the upper hand. Mm-hmm. It's wild how how hardy, how morally, how how much morality this army has, if you ask me. I, personally, would have been a draft dodger, but if I were still in it, I would be running now. Especially considering this is an army that is entirely mercenaries. Famously, people who are only here for personal benefit, not people who are here because they truly believe in the cause. And your personal benefits pretty much cease to exist if you die. And yet, the Silver Spears are uh, a breed apart, as they say. And uh, yes, at this moment, it is impressive that they stay. And there are repeated events that continue to shift the battle away from them in sharp bursts. Like, there are there are definite, like, pivot moments throughout this battle, and every one of them sees the mercenaries continue fighting or redouble their efforts and charge back in. It is incredibly impressive. If he's so hot that we have to hate him, we're still alive? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's just sure. what happens when you've got hot people around. You notice that Cat's army never routes so long as Ratface is with them. Right. But... There's one named left, correct? And it's the Equerry? Mm-hmm. And despite what British monarch fetishists are worried about, and by this, I'm not attacking the British this time. I'm saying those who fetishize the British monarchy. Nobody cares about an Equerry. It, yep. B- b- worry about real things. And yet, Kat describes what they are doing as charging into the meat grinder. Without even flinching. They are it she uses the phrase meat grinder and then says that they are tenacious, which again, I, why are they it's doing not this? Even her meat being ground. Right. And she Ugh. It's horse meat, I think we've established. And then she tells us that two routes in a row had been too much to hope for. I am not a scholar of the Jenga Tower or the Row of Dominoes that I am deliberately seeding into this conversation before I get there that is an army. But I would think that a route would mean maybe more routing because things are now worse. Yeah, that's that's like a basic way that you win fights, like you win battles. The you know the expression is that death isn't contagious, but fear is. If people if one person runs, other people run. That that's how it works. You you win a battle by causing a small route because then everybody runs. Uh, yeah, these, again, there, there's something going on. There's something in the water in Silver Spearland, as they say. That That's where they're from, People right? People will do that on city streets. It, you can try this out. Go to the nearest major city and then start running and screaming and see if you can cause a huge stampede. People will get hurt. It's your fault. But And you're you not may- even in a battle. But make sure you have like a camera set up or a phone set up to catch this on video, because then even if people get hurt, it's funny and you get YouTube v- views and stuff, so it's worth it. Also, oh, make sure you say it's just a prank, bro. Also, research crowd crushes. It's just really interesting. It's horrifying, but interesting. Very much so. And there are fewer than you might think, and also more. Yeah, speaking as somebody who is both uninterested in crowds from a social perspective and also mild to moderately claustrophobic, uh, crowd crushes are one of my nightmares. My nightmares are usually of the gods below, but whatever. Uh, Which is sort of how Juniper swears, I guess. Uh, Things aren't going well uh, because some weird spear folks roll up and Juniper's bark as it's described by Catherine, is what in the dark gods which is <laughs> it's very good the not you know phrasing it as what in the and then following that up with a group of people is always good 
and also, but you know, the dark gods rather than the gods below. You get a nice little extra bit of uh, flavor on these these folks. We can refer to a group of gods as folks, right? Uh, uh yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's just a it's just a fun line. What in the dark gods? But you have to react that way because these people are using spears and they're good at killing. So, what in the dark gods? Am I right? Yeah, there's a weird moment because these uh, these people that Hawkram describes for us briefly in, in just a minute uh, are showing up wearing the same armor as everybody else. Or, sorry, not wearing the same armor as everybody else. They're wearing leather and they are using just spears, um, which for a mercenary crew called the Silver Spears uh, shouldn't stand out too much. But these, these people are moving quickly and gracefully and being incredibly effective and just carving a bloody swath through the, the Legion. And uh, Catherine is unhappy with this because, as she says, there's no way anyone using spears should be that good at killing. Spears were useful as a wall to press back infantry or break cavalry charges, but these people, these, uh, what does he call them, spear saints, were using them as a, a single combat weapons flawlessly. And I, I get this idea that, you know, spears are massed infantry weapons and are also not cool and flashy like swords are because that's just because rich people have had swords but like spears are very good weapons even for single combat if you're fighting someone and you have more reach than them you have a huge advantage like yes spears are cheap compared to a sword or most other weapons actually but even on top of that the fact that spears are prior to the world wars they are literally the most common weapon in human history. Yes, expense has to do with that. You know, it's just a stick with a sharp thing on the end. But there have been a number of states with plenty of resources who opted for spears because they're incredibly effective weapons on a battlefield. R- Reach is the queen of a fight. And you, Catherine not noticing that or not caring about that here and just being i think she's just wowed by how flashy these uh spear saints are but uh yeah it it just always uh rubs me the wrong way when someone says uh, spears aren't good weapons unless you're in a spear wall or what have you spears are great uh cat's not sure who these folks are yet and apparently neither is juniper and unsurprisingly neither is these but for us it's not surprising because masego just wouldn't care about a group of people who are good with a stick but cat takes this moment to just randomly burn z's in the narrative uh just he just sort of like catches strays here with this this line and rather than being like oh i don't know who these people are and none of my no one around me does she specifically mentions masego is pretty much useless when it came to anything that didn't have to do with magic or poor social skills just what cow what are you, what are you doing <laughs> Masego's your pal and you're just like roasting him internally when these i, I get that you're upset about these spear folks but like Masego, what did he do to deserve that come on he, he he does have contracts with devil to be fair yeah but i don't think that deserves this kind of dunking i don't think catherine could dunk if she stood on hakram's shoulders i'm gonna be <laughs> honest with you <laughs> yeah that's fair and Sam Hockram's shoulders would be Sam the shoulders of a giant, and not just physically, but intellectually as well, because he knows. Was that, were you leaving it there intentionally? That's it. He does know. Hockram's <laughs> uh, able to fill us in on who these folks are. Uh, apparently he does some reading in his spare time about all potential military units they might run into. Uh and these are the Halika Spear Saints, uh, which is, you know, Spear Saint, pretty cool name for your military unit. They sound very intriguing, uh, and he gives us just a bit more information, but not too much. It's a fun bit. They're a monastic order from the Free Cities that dedicate their life to the spear, he informed us. And I recognize that there's room for a monastic order that is just military with lifestyle overtones but these people are called spear saints and most monastic orders are religious in nature i love me a good warrior priest mm-hmm. what is cooler than zealotry and i mean this honestly i love paladins if, if you believe something you gotta be willing to kill for it dang it 
Huh, that's an interesting stance to take. I believe it is. That's why I'm willing to kill over it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I also believe that Hakram is cool. Do you disagree with me? Not at all. Okay. You survived this time. Oh, thank you. Because he said because he says that since he figured they might end up fighting in the free cities at some point, mm-hmm. which is not anywhere on their radar. Right. He's been looking up foreign units they should be careful around, which is amazing. But moreover, he says this because when everyone's surprised he knows this, he offers up a sheepish grin for knowing about enemy military units. Yep. <laughs> when it's his job to be at hand with knowledge, he's literally called Hakram at hand or something. No, that's right. He's the at hand in. Uh, you got one more in you because these are both okay. Hakram, more like the, the guy who's at hand. There you go. Comedy comes in threes, folks. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, the fact that he's, like, embarrassed by being the only one there with relevant intel on the enemy is <laughs> very funny. <laughs> like, good job, Hakram. Of course, it doesn't end up mattering who they are particularly because uh, the solution is for Catherine to say, Apprentice, clean that mess up. And he does. Always a solution, though. Or I mean, a it, solution. Yeah, it's always a potential solution to just say, Masego, go clean that up. But he does by moving forward and preparing a spell. Um, and uh, we get a, a little exchange where Juniper's unsure about if that's going to be enough. And Catherine says, the only other mage I've seen pulling out magic on the same level as Masego is his father. A pretty huge compliment to Masego and also very clearly saying yeah this battle's you know completely under control but oh with her father she said something a little well she thought something a little different but here she's not going to comment that her girlfriend is probably also pretty cool too (laughs) yeah we're I mean it's it's good that she uh she didn't because that would just I think hurt her point a little bit but Masego does use one of uh one of the uh, major, what, what's her title? Tribune? She's a mage tribune, right? Uh, so Misego uh, goes forward to clean this up with a uh, a spell that is reminiscent of the very same mage. Uh, he calls down a blast of lightning against the enemy. But unsurprisingly to everybody except Cat, maybe, who has a very high opinion of her paramour's uh, abilities, um... Masego's version of Nicole, with a K, his trick is so much better. He calls down lightning, and rather than just taking out one guy who's important, a dozen of these spear saints die instantly, and then another two dozen are thrown away like ragdolls. All right, Zs, uh, you know, next chapter he'll comment on not being, not, not caring as much about the just killing people and just affecting the battlefield in big ways, but... Also, he can just kill people, and it's very effective. I mean, if you could throw fireballs, you or, wouldn't be excited about killing people. That's just, you know, your day job. I guess. But he did take care of uh, about two-thirds of the Spear Saints with exactly one spell, so nice job. Yeah, but he's probably spent for the day, right? Not going to be instrumental in some major magics in the next chapter? And not even just ones on screen? That sounds about right, yeah. So, Catherine's got the best mages. Uh-huh. I had to think for a moment to be sure, but Warlock's not in the Legions of Terror. So, in fact, Catherine has the best mage accompaniment in the Legions of Terror. I know Masego isn't part of the Legions of Terror, but he's with them, so I'm counting that. There is no better mage. But Warlock doesn't count for being with Black when he's leading a Legion? Oh, he's not with Black when he's leading a Legion. He has to get called in specially. That's true. Okay. Uh, I'm, yeah, he can count when he's around, but right now, Catherine has some most magically gifted legion of all 15. I'm willing to hear arguments, but you're wrong. But that's not the only thing she's got the best of, because she's got weirdly accurate crossbowmen. Probably crossbow women too, but the word here is crossbowmen. And I'm just going to accept that as androcentrism in the language. Yeah. Uh, we uh, Kat notices this and uh, is thinking about it, and we find out that part of the reason is that Pickler is particularly concerned. Oh, I missed a chance here. That Pickler is particularly picky about the type of 
wood and rope used in their crossbows, uh, which is probably the least surprising thing we've seen in this chapter, that <laughs> that Pickler is paying attention to the rope used in the crossbows. And uh, yeah, of course the 15th has the best crossbows in the entire Legions of Terror. Pickler's there, and Pickler is a unique talent she is singular in her engineering skills it seems oh i get it pickler is picky there you go and after noticing the crossbows it's time for the named to step in Catherine and hawkram are heading out to taking the reserve with them and heading into the battle uh reinforcing the left flank because that's where the equerry is not only the equerry because one of Catherine's lame mages, other than the two lowercase n named mages, one of whom is capital N named mage, throws a ball of fire at the equerry, but a man right behind him, we talked about that last time, raised his mm-hmm. hand and the magic flickered out of existence. So that's the priest that's been monkey that's the priest that's been mucking up our scrying. Catherine says, I'll take the equerry. Hakram, you get the priest before he can make more of a mess. And they go in. And obviously, Hakram is going to power through and be big and strong, plus now being named. Catherine is the size of a toddler. Right. But this is her first time fighting in and amongst an army. And she calls the experience enlightening. She burrowed into their line like an arrow into flesh, too horrified to smile. Wow. Um, glad you're not smiling over it, Catherine. But, uh, oof. For all those soldiers. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's definitely a brutal description, like an arrow into flesh. And she's, I mean, that that's Catherine here. It's a, a relatively martial-focused name going up against foot, foot soldiers who are, you know, described as being not great, just tenacious. So, uh, Unbelievably yeah. Unbelievably tenacious. <laughs> it's some bloody business, for sure. But after carving her way through... Uh, these soldiers like a scythe through wheat she comes across the equerry now that she's close enough she says now that i was close enough to see the boy's face i wasn't so sure he was in fact a boy maybe he just had really delicate bone structure and i complained moderately last time i'm going to complain a little more severely this time this isn't the setting for that i understand i have said it before i'll say it again there is room to be mistaken about people's gender based on aspects of presentation that don't seem to match up or just wrong assumption. I, I have been misgendered because I was going around with a toddler and I wasn't facing someone. And also I was wearing a woman's hat. It's my hat, but it's sold as a woman's hat. Because it was hot woman, and it was wide-brimmed. And a woman's coat. I was not wearing my woman's coat that time. It was midsummer. Oh, I thought you were talking about a few days ago. No. All right. But I was in the store and I was facing another direction. At midday on in the work week, I was doing childcare. So a wide straw brimmed hat, feminine in our culture. Childcare during the workday, feminized in our culture. So yeah, I was misgendered from behind. I get that. But I turned around and was in fact wearing a bow tie at the time. And they corrected themselves and were deeply embarrassed and I why would you care? Right. Uh, why would I care? You you should you can correct yourself and feel off if you misgender someone. Don't get me wrong. But here, armies are for everyone. That's very established. The important people in this army are Catherine's paramour, woman. Catherine's tactician, woman. Catherine's whatever Aisha is, side tactician. Yes. Aisha Bashara is Catherine's side tactician. <laughs> Woman. Hakram's important, but he's directly subordinate to Catherine. His job is to be subordinate, not above anyone, really. Mm. Ratface is instrumental, but also not about being above people. He's eye candy. Well, yeah. Pickler has some authority. Gobwoman. Hune. I mean, to be fair, including goblins in a discussion on gender roles is going to be a little different because they are extremely strict compared to basically everyone else in this setting. But, you know. Not that the legions cater to that, but. No, but. But the fact is, women permeate the army and have for a generation, and about a generation, because we know somebody had a little defenestration over it. Oops. I just don't 
why is Catherine making excuses to see the equerry as male? Like, if he if he had something about his presentation that established, I'm doing something traditionally masculine, and therefore, despite my delicate bone structure, I am presenting as a man. Sure, but she's not particularly presenting as a man. She's just doing, you know, girl things. Casually running her rapier through the eye of a goblin. I, I, I love everything about the series, everything about E.E., e., who is my close personal friend, as you now know. And th- th- I'm just a little hung up on this, but it's still great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm right there with you, obviously. I completely agree. It could very easily be a case of, well, I assumed a man at first, or a boy, whatever, um, at first, and the evidence presented now is not conclusive, so I'm sticking with my original assumption. The dwelling on it is weird, but the the you know not changing the assumption until uh, the the equerry speaks is I mean, I can see that happening very easily. It is it is definitely a weird thing for Cat to dwell on so much. Of course, I say that we've dwelled on it for longer than Cat ever has. So, <laughs> but also when the equerry speak, tone doesn't necessarily have to. Tone and timbre and pitch aren't necessarily... Yeah, but okay. fortunately, I, when the equerry speak, speaks, we can focus on something else, because it turns out she's awful. Is she? Uh-huh. What? But I thought she was good. Well, just like the other hero who talks, um, you know, the one other one who talks so far, uh, the equerry says... It is very canonical that the Shining Prince can only shout in all caps, so you're right. <laughs> Fair. Uh, the equerry gives us the first thing she says in a non-interlude chapter, is you to Catherine. You're the one who ordered that filthy orc to shoot. You're going to launch in with some casual racism to get the battle started. You know, whatever. I just like, she's mad at Catherine, but as part of that, it's not your soldier or your officer or the marksman or anything. It's just specifically the filthy orc, as though the death of the, the prince was worse for having been enacted by an orc. And it makes Catherine worse by association. The equerry's gross. I mean, that's all this is. She could even put a pejorative word there that didn't have to racialize it, because oh, the orc murdered someone. He is a damned orc or damnable. There, it's a moral failing for the guy who did the bad thing. No, or, filthy. It, but and if it had been filthy and then not mentioned species there, the the filthy marksman or the filthy soul. Sure, now you're just calling somebody gross because you don't like them. But yes, these two words together, definitely woof. Very, uh, very billium. Speaking of damnation, however, Catherine tells us, I assumed she was referring to Nock, which was being quite unfair to my commander. He bathed exactly as often as Legion regulations required it, so he wasn't any filthier than the rest of my army. And if that is not the definition of damnation by specific praise... I do not know it. (laughs) Not he bathed as often as required, but exactly as often. I (laughs) very good. Well, Catherine wants Nock to feel bad. The equerry wants Catherine to feel bad. Yeah, she tries to throw these. uh, You killed a good man. It was cold-blooded murder. And Catherine internally. Uh, gets gives us a little paragraph that I'm just going to read because I think it's a nice one for... Uh, this happens every so often and obviously is a theme throughout the whole story or especially the earlier chapters. But uh, the title of the series, like the, the theme of this work, gets boiled down... That's backwards. Gets boiled up into a paragraph here that kind of expands on it. And it's, it's nice when that just shows up sometimes uh, where you, you really see what where this story began. Uh, so the paragraph here is, uh, she, the equerry, was barking up the wrong tree if she was trying to guilt trip me about the exiled prince's death. He'd been asking for a duel, and if you took all the glorified pomp out of the concept, all that was left was the intent to kill. If you're asking me to be sorry that I was smarter about killing him than he was about killing me, you'll be waiting a long time. It just, yep, there it is. We were trying to kill each other, obviously, we both agreed on that, he was just stupid about it, and that's <laughs> that's kind of uh, a driving force of a lot of how Cat acts because that's who she is, but also because that's how she was trained by Black, who also you know is pretty big into that. It's it's just a 
it's a nice little paragraph. Nice, nice ties it up for us. Catherine is a uh, palist, perhaps. Perhaps so much that she doesn't even feel bad when being accused of being pricey. Because the equity says, I should have known better than to expect contrition from a pricey. And Catherine gives her trademark at this point, blunt factual rebuttal. I'm actually from Callow. Absolutely demolished her. Oh no, I'm an orphan, actually. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's very hard to get purchase on her sometimes, currently. And Uh, There will be a new hole in her face eventually that might be a good grasping point. Mm, Yeah. But the uh, the rebuttal definitely works because the equerry's response is to completely ignore her, and then they start fighting. Um, the uh, yeah, the, that cracks. Yeah, <laughs> the fight gets going, and uh, the majority of the fight can be summed up with the the equerry being very fast and Catherine being very brutal. Um, <clears throat> which yeah, sure. Uh, we got the rapier against the short sword. The person who's kind of like a squire against an actual squire. Um, but one of the things that Catherine notices is that she has been sparring against Captain, so she's well-prepared to handle somebody who's much faster than she is or faster than most other people. Um, Captain's speed is kind of famed. So that that's a useful uh, bit of training she had. But Catherine refers to um, her own reflexes as being as bordering on the supernatural. And I gotta say, or, uh, yeah, she says her reflexes bordered on the supernatural. And I think the word bordered is an interesting choice for somebody who is supernaturally endowed with superhuman speed and strength so that she can be basically a one-woman army. Uh, but yeah, bordering on supernatural. Sure, Catherine. I mean, what word would you use? Just, just supernatural. I never watched that show. Hmm. So... Catherine has not faced anyone using a rapier before, which put her at a disadvantage, she said. And I don't know anything about swordplay, really. However, it just seems to me that if not for the supernatural aspect, Catherine would have an advantage by having armor and a big sword. And a shield. But given the fact that there is supernatural stuff going on and the equerry is well-positioned because of that... Catherine's probably right in thinking, I just have to stay defensive until I had a better grasp on the way she fought. However, learning what your opponent's doing and turning against them is actually the move of a calamity. And that calamity is Catherine's stepmother-in-law. Yeah, that, I think that's the relationship. Well, I mean, oh, Catherine's stepmother slash mother-in-law, maybe? Because it's Indrani's mom. Right. It's also Catherine's dad's wife. Wife's a strong word, but sure. And Catherine and Indrani are married. Wow. You know, when you add this extra layer to it, I would say it does get a little incestuous. My grandmother and her cousin were born on the same day a year apart, and they married twins. So that also feels incestuous, but it's not. I, I appreciate that you... I appreciate the context that you added in there about their birthdays, as though that influences the amount of incest going on. <laughs> kind of feels like it should. Is it, though? The stars, so... Mm, the stars, good point. But this does mean I am actually, genetically speaking, twins with my second cousins, so... And with yourself. I think I'm my own uncle, actually. Oh. If I did that right. Huh. So... The fight goes, it, it, you know, it's a pretty, fairly even fight. Catherine has some advantages. The equerry has some advantages. But uh, the equerry apparently has, according to Cat, fought people in plate before, uh, which is a decision she makes a few seconds into the fight. First of all, I would imagine, so yes, Catherine, a lot of people wear armor. Um, but she follows that up by explaining the reason she thinks that is because, quote, no one our age improvised that well on the spot, end quote. Isn't that Kat's, like, whole game being an exceptional improviser, like, going into chaos and figuring out what to do in the midst of that better than everyone else around her? Didn't Black compliment her on that, like, five chapters ago? No idea what you're talking about. All right, fair enough. The fight continues back and forth. We don't need to... Do the blow-by-blow if you're interested. Read the chapter, which you should have done anyway. That was your homework for this week. Um, But we get a... a test. Oh, yeah. Obviously. And 
just so you know, you, listener, have missed the last 53 tests. You've got zeros across the board right now. I would double check on that if I were you. But uh, at one point, Kat decides the best way to deal with speed is to uh, pull a maneuver that (laughs) uh, she describes using a phrase similar to one in our world, uh, but modified slightly so it's, you know, hashtag, I don't want to use that phrase, modified slightly so that it is fantasy, TM. Uh, She says, I rushed her with all the grace of an ogre tearing through a pottery shop. And uh, as she does this, her name comes awake and, you know, we get uh, this extra description of her name, which I always like to, to point out and talk about, or at least bring up so we're paying attention to this as it continues evolving. Um, but her name was Howling Like an Angry Beast, Thirsting for Blood. We don't get this kind of perspective on most names because we only have one main protagonist here, but Thirsting for Blood. Catherine has such, like, on the surface, such a tame name. She's the squire. One of her aspects is learn and also her name is this massive monster that wants nothing more than to kill everything uh there's a (laughs) i think that might say as much about catherine as uh the name itself but it's a it's a mess of a name no the question i have is whether or how we want to distinguish between the name of squire or the role of squire or how much you want to distinguish between squire and Catherine's namedness, the entity behind it, because she continues to have this manifestation of name, this experience of name, even as Warden. Mm-hmm. And it's not something inherent to the Squire, I think. But if it is, God bless Arthur. I love him so much. Oh, no. So here's my thought. The mantle itself is has a way of interacting with the world, but the lens through which an individual named views that mantle or experiences that mantle will change, and that will affect how they understand it to be working. So in this moment, even with these exact same things happening, they wouldn't happen exactly like this because that's not how he functioned, but we're black here as the squire, he would see the machinery of his army crushing the equerry or, you know, the his plan clicking into place and the methodical, okay, I'm going to be brutal because that beats her speed. And so there'd be the, the step-by-step. But the mantle itself is doing the same thing in both of those instances, and it's just how it's interpreted. I can see that being the way this works because the, the squire is, like all names a rut worn into creation so it can't like the the mantle itself can't be drastically different just because a different person has it unless there are multiple squire stories which actually there probably are because you probably need some for the white knight but i don't know i i could just i can see that being an interpretation from cat more so than the thing that her name is actually doing so when i was in middle school learning how to write the five paragraph essay And also when I was in graduate school, when I was writing conference papers, one thing I was taught was we're not supposed to contradict and undermine our argument in the last sentence. Okay. And that said, I like your analysis, and I think it's fair on every front. However, I do have to say you were wrong about something, so I found something to call you wrong about. Great. You said that a lot of the way we're seeing things is because Catherine is our perspective character. We don't get the story through other eyes, pretty much. What percent of the guide do you think is narrated by Catherine, or from Catherine's perspective? Uh, uh, 72%. See, that's why you made such an inane claim. In fact, Catherine narrates 68.2% uh, of the guide. Wow. I'm, actually, uh, I'm shocked I was that close, actually. <laughs> that was magnificent. Uh, and then the second... Any idea who the second biggest perspective is i'll give you a hint i'm making a it, bad joke uh it's not roland is it no it's other with 15.7 percent uh, classic other i bet all of our listeners are wondering where they can go to look at this data i have so i think Catherine has a really cool line when she finally gets the equity through just rage and brute murderating mm-hmm. and she takes her sword she rams it through the uh, 
I wanted to say she rams it through the equerry's throat, but all I can really say is she rams it right under her chin, and then she says, oh, words, but they're not mine to share. <laughs> yeah, she leans in close and uh, whis- whispers or gasps to uh, the equerry, when you see your prince on the other side, tell him he should have worn his god's hecked helmet. And first of all, it's like so funny to 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 throw to be killing one person and using that as a burn on a person you killed earlier, but also just like the last minute taunt here uh, is just very good. It's very Catherine. And uh, interestingly, and you know appropriately, the chapter ends with the equerry. And just like the chapter and the equerry are ending, so too must this episode. Oh, good. I thought you were going to say, so too must we. And I was not ready for that. <laughs> I have not written a will. So get your affairs in order. Living will and last will and testament. And then join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss tricks, traps, and snaps. Wait in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Dream Library by Piano Amor. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the pretty good, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of Pixabay.com slash music go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge if you'd like to support this podcast follow us on twitter at the long price do you have questions comments contributions are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors email us at the at gmail.com if you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash P-G-T-E-E. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access a number of things we've thrown up there over time. We implore you, do not consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, our patron and mentor, the Traveling Teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the Hopeful Romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 19, Flame.